Joseph, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Professor Carol Boyce-Davies. Uh, professor Boyce-Davies is the Frank H.T. Rhodes Professor of Humane Letters and a Professor of Africana Studies and Literatures in English at Cornell University. And today we'll be discussing a book of hers that I really love, uh, Left of Karl Marx, uh, The Life of Claudia Jones. And Professor Boyce-Davies, if you don't mind just introducing yourself uh, and talking a little bit about before we get into the life of Claudia Jones and her thought and activity as a Black female communist, if you don't mind just introducing yourself and why you decided to write this text. Okay. Um, my name is Carol Boyce-Davies, as you indicate. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, which is relevant to Claudia Jones project for a number of reasons. Um, the first being that one tends to know more about the male activists from the Caribbean, um, particularly in the Trinidad context, C.L.R. James, who would be a good counterpart um, as opposed to the women. Um, and my um, intellectual formation comes uh, from studying um, literature, uh, first of all, as an undergrad, and then moving from that to African studies with a literature culture focus at Howard University, and then a scholarship to um, study African literature at the University of Ibad in Nigeria. And then after that, I've worked um, in the Caribbean, I've worked in Brazil, I've taught, in other words, when I say worked, I mean taught at the university level um, and done intellectual work and research in um, Trinidad, first of all, to repay the government for my scholarship. I had to do that for four years. Um, and then um, after that, um, worked at Binghamton University in New York, which was actually my formative intellectual um, university as, a, as an academic. And really, I say formative because Binghamton, at the time that I was there, I was fortunate was like the center for something called World Systems Theory run by a professor named Wallace Stein. So we were all beneficiaries of Wallace Stein's work and the people he would bring to campus, for example, Anibal Kihanu, I saw Anibal Kihanu develop the coloniality of power while he was there and listened to the various versions of it that he presented. And then um, have had Fulbrights in Brazil, uh, in China, with a visiting professor, Cuba last year, actually this year. And um, my, my um, coming to Cornell uh, uh, was in 2007, and it was after doing a nine-year period as a director of an African studies, African diaspora studies program at Florida International University in Miami where I was recruited from Binghamton to help develop that program, which we did and created a master's there. But then I had a lot of intellectual work that was left undone, in particularly the Claudia Jones left of Karl Marx. So that's, Cornell allowed me to bring it full circle. And though the research was done before I was able to complete uh, the whole process of submission and so on while I was at Cornell. So it comes out with a Cornell, um, indication of me as a professor here, but actually it's accumulation of work done at, from Binghamton, Florida International, and um, and of course, finishing it at Cornell University. Um, I have to say though that um, the process, your question was, why did I do this book? The first one was of course, 
filling in gaps, this knowledge gaps as far as women are concerned is really critical. But secondly, um, when uh, I was asked to do something on black feminist theory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, and I was one of a number of black feminist scholars invited to do that. And I started thinking about what I would talk about. And I, I knew because people like Bell Hooks and the other black feminist scholars that I admired were gonna be there that I did not want to sort of cover the same ground they did. And I decided to say, well, what should I do that has the Caribbean in it? And I had been exposed to um, a book on Claudia Jones actually edited by the father of Amandla, Thomas Johnson, who um, had published a small book titled, I think of my mother, work, Notes on the Life and Times of Claudia Jones. So I decided to go back and look at that book to see if I should use it uh, as the basis for what I was going to present and to do some additional research on her. And then when I started doing that, I discovered there was not much done at all, written at all at the time. So that was the other big research gap that I filled in terms of knowing her. And then finally, um, in that process, I discovered that two things, that one, there's a very linear narrative as far as black scholars are concerned in the US, so that it begins at a particular point and it stays right within the US borders and people who come from other locations or left and went to other locations tend to disappear. Um, from full consideration. So even major books that studied black women at that time did not really include Claudia. And, and if you did see her as I did, and there was one entry by Robin D.G. Kelly on her at the Schomburg, um, which was very, very rudimentary, didn't have much information because that was what was available at the time. Um, and another piece by John McClendon, a graduate colleague of mine from Howard, who was a Marxist, um, um, as he says, unreconstructed Marxist. And John McClendon um, had written a piece on Claudia as well. Those are the only two things I found when I started looking for material on her. So besides the Buzz Johnson book, which is a collection of some of her, uh, of her writings with an introduction by him, there was not much, and those two things, there was not much available at all. So this is when I began the process of looking and trying to find material and looking everywhere. And um, because I used to go to um, London with the Binghamton, um, they had a study abroad in London. I would use that time each time I was there to make contact and to interview people and to get material and to do research. And gradually that bore fruit because I was able to meet people who gave me material, who when I interviewed them, sometimes with tears in their eyes would say they're so happy that somebody was working on her or she needed to be considered more seriously. And I have to say though, even then I did not have a, even a fullest sense of the, the fullest sense of the magnitude of who she was. But the more I did the work on her, I realized, oh my God, this woman is big, this is major. So I kind of was really fortunate to be positioned to, to really have a, an opportunity to do that. And a couple of the people that I met and interviewed, each time they would say, well, if you want us to go see her, she is actually buried next to Karl Marx in Highgate Cemetery. And one fine day, I decided, let me go up there. And I walked, it's really up a hill. Um, you take a bus going up, and then you still have to go up walking 
till you get to the Highgate Cemetery. And um, I went on, I wanted to know, they said, well, you need to find Mark. So I went on a tour looking for eventually, thinking that the tour guide would eventually bring us to Mark's, but he took us to like a really old part of the cemetery with people from the 12th, 15th century and so on. And I stopped and I asked him, well, where is Mark buried? Where's the Mark's bus? And he said, oh, it's in the new part. And he said, it's over there. So I left, abandoned that tour, which is really symbolic, and then walked across and eventually found the Mark's bus, this huge towering bus, which is still there on a pedestal about 11 feet tall, and then on a flat stone on the, on the left of, to the left of that Mark's bus, I found the Claudia Jones marker, which, which identifies her from Trinidad and Tobago when she was born. And it says, brilliant, you know, brilliant fighter for the liberation of her people, of her black people, and when she died. So that's the long story of getting to work with her and finding as much as I could at that time on her. Fantastic. And, and as you write in the book, her symbolic positioning in Highgate Cemetery left of Karl Marx is also very indicative of her theory that was expanding and, and adding elements that Marx could not and did not consider. Uh, so I'd love to talk a little bit about her theory. And I think the way you do it in the text of first introducing her life story and talking about how that shaped her theories that would be developed through Marxism later on is the best way to understand uh, what she was enunciating and elaborating upon. So she was born in 1915 in Belmont in Port of Spain in Trinidad and Tobago. But at eight years old, her family left to go to the United States. And I'm wondering if you can discuss a little bit about what her early life was like in Trinidad while it was still uh, technically uh, colonized by the British Empire at the time, and then how her formative years in the United States would also help shape her engagement with the Communist Party uh, from her specific position as a Black woman. Right. And I was fortunate to um, find um, the street where she was born um, in Trinidad, in Belmont. And actually, she, in her own narrative, had identified herself as born in Woodbrook, which is really another town adjacent to Belmont. But Belmont is really significant, and all the people from Belmont are proud of this because it's the center for a great deal of cultural um, creativity in Trinidad and Tobago. So many famous people come from Belmont or live there still or, um, or, or came through there at a particular point. So when people heard she was from Belmont, they were like, of course. So Belmont was one of those urban um, towns that after slavery and emancipation, a number of Black people move to as they move north. Um, and it ends up having really an interesting kind of framing um, because it, it also had uh, their um, kind of African-based religious um, structural um, framing because there were, there were two African um, religious um, communities there, one called Rada, um, and another one that was more Orisha-based. Orisha is more Yoruba-based. Rada is more like Vodou, Yoruba. Uh, sorry, Vodou, more like what you'd find in Haiti, Dahomey, and so on. 
So those two kind of cultural religious centers for many people provided that community with a kind of nexus of religious activism and resistance, which in almost every situation, if one thinks to Haiti, you would know that the um, Haitian revolution is sort of inspired and fueled by the fact that people had a consciousness of, of another kind of spirituality besides the Christian versions, which encourage people to accept domination, obey your master, steal the other cheek, and so on. Whereas the African-based were much more vibrant. They have to do with, they use drumming, they use cultural forms, they had communities separated from the churches and so on. Or if they used the churches, it was really in a, in a syncretic or in a masking kind of way. So Belmont had all of that going on. And, and it would be one of the places as well where you have right in that structure the, the rise of the what is now called the first major um, instrument to be, the only major instrument to be created in the 20th century, the steel pan, right? So the, the creation of the steel pan, which also carries with it a certain kind of resistance because it was like people taking oil drums and beating them into shape after being denied drumming and so on, which would lead to the creation of the steel band. So all of that is, I'm seeing you asking about what would create her. She is, a, even at age five, six, seven, you are sort of exposed to all of those kind of cultural forms. And I think all the psychologists say that whatever is imprinted in a child up until five, that's really what really defines and helps to shape one's identity. So she would have seen carnival, she would have seen masking, she would have heard that music, she would have heard those drums. She would have really been exposed to Caribbean culture um, and the question of, of the way communities are structured, neighbors and all of that would be really part of how she would have been um, shaped by the time she left to go to the United States. And this would have a direct connection with the fact that when she's in London, she um, sees the 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 knotting here. I'm jumping ahead, of course, but it's links the the um, ways that communities were treated there, and decides to create a carnival. And I've had people say, "Well, would she have known about carnival?" Yeah, she would have. And I remember my memories of carnival from very young are very striking because back in that period, carnival had to do with a lot of masking, and 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 um, it's not it's not as as um, fancy as it is now. Um, and it, it really has an imprint when you wake up carnival morning and you look outside and you see a masquerade going down the street. It's more like African masquerade and you're like, whoa, it was, it was tired, you know, it's scary and so on. Uh, and then relatedly, the question of migration is linked because then her family migrates um, and she, of course, follows them later on. But there's always that, that um, issue for children who are... Um, you know, the re who are not, I was going to say the result of, but children who are produced through that process of migration, how they have to sort of think, rethink family, rethink connections, um, the desires, you know, all of those things are part of it. And of course, the dream of going to New York was linked to um, having, as for most migrants, a better life, only to arrive there and discover that as a Black person, you're still suffering from some of the racial, or worse probably than you did in the Caribbean, the racial um, structures that were in place, the Jim Crow racism. So she always mentioned that her communist activity um, was linked to the fact that she witnessed and experienced 
Jim Crow racism and, and was trying to find the best explanation for what um what would be ways to to respond to it or solve it, you know, this racial oppression. And she says repeatedly that she found the Communist Party offered the best answers to that question. So much. And I'd love to talk a little bit also about when she's in the United States and her political formation uh, is continuing in 1935 and 1936. Uh, what happens when she becomes involved in the case of the Scottsboro Boys? And that becomes sort of her introduction to the Communist Party, to communism itself, uh, and specifically shaped around anti-racism and uh, the emerging civil rights struggle. So how does that ultimately help her develop a, a form of Marxism and, and a, an engagement with communism and the American Communist Party, which up until then had been dominated by white Americans, uh, had many allegations of, of racist chauvinism, but she was able to engage with it in a way that centered anti-racism uh, in mm -hmm. the struggle. Yeah, fundamentally, she um, felt, uh, given her own experience, that her mother dies when she is 32 years old, and her mother had been working in, as a factory worker. And in that period, it was called speed up uh, factory work. What happened was that the women who would work those machines would have to stay inside and not really leave until they had completed a bulk of work. Um, and in, in a couple, there were a couple accidents, one a fire that led, that happened because of, of people not being allowed to leave things like bathroom break and so on. So it was really a debilitating kind of um, situation uh, for one to be uh, caught in working. So losing her mother at the age of 32 was really formative. And she talks about that because it had an effect on not being able to go to high school graduation, not being able to participate fully as a young girl would want to in all of the aspects of, of her um, of her educational experience, the social and other aspects of her educational experience. But in, in school, she is very active. She, you know, she runs for office and, and she's very involved. But the Scottsboro Boys case was, was really prominently um, um, taking place around that time. And she mentioned growing up in Harlem when she moves from Trinidad, they end up in Harlem in very poor circumstances. Her father was working as a super in a building, meaning he was in the they were in the basement apartment, and she mentioned that it was an open sewer running right through the apartment. So um, I've looked at photographs from that period, and it's really stark. And it, you know, people live very poor, poor lives um, then, um, poor, 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 you know, circumstances then in terms of the apartment and so on. So living in a basement. <laughs> as a young kid from Trinidad um, was not easy and led to her, of course, getting tuberculosis and so on, which would then affect her health later on. But um, the Scott Boys case was like a prominent case at that time that the Communist Party USA, CPUSA was very involved in, um, in trying to provide legal rights for these young boys, nine of them who were falsely accused of, of raping two uh, young white girls in a boxcar on a train um, leading, going through the South, leading to Scottsboro, Alabama. Um, so the Communist Party um, at that time um, would often have discussions at street corners 
with people talking about the case. And she was she was the kind of person and growing up in Harlem, it was not unusual to to have street corner speakers, which um actually was a technique developed by another Caribbean in Hubert Harrison, um, who actually was one of the people who developed that whole idea of doing that street corner lecturing, which Marcus Garvey would subsequently follow. But the Communist Party speakers would talk about the Scottsboro Voice case and, and the need, you know, for people to support and be involved in it. And she became one of those people who was also touched by what they said and listened and so on. I, I should also add that Rosa Parks, the famous, also indicates that she was influenced by the Scottsboro Voice organizing as well to become activist, an activist. So she said that the explanations again for what happened to those young boys in Alabama, young men um, in Alabama, because the youngest was, I believe, like 12 years old and, and went all the way up to 19 and so on. And they were tried repeatedly and repeatedly trying to find ways that they could actually um, prosecute them and lynch them. And, and really difficult um, experiences emanated from that, from for those young men afterwards, as you can imagine, um, from having to go through that and be in prison for that long. Um, so she was very much tr uh, triggered to do the kind of work that she did by um, not just working through the class position that is often articulated via mainstream communism, but by looking at how gender and race in are inflected as well with those class positions and therefore a theoretical place then in terms of thinking through all of that would lead her to see that black women, again, thinking back to her mother, uh, were very central in any kind of way of, of doing any kind of mobilizing or any kind of organizing that black women actually if organized appropriately because they run families, they're the leaders of communities often, um, they have, you know, they carry the bulk of, of the responsibility for raising the next generation and so on. That if they're if they are tapped appropriately, then they would be the really important center for any kind of, of vanguard, if you will, for organizing. So she's flipping then the sort of communist worker paradigm to say the black women actually are the most um, logical, hardcore workers, if you will, who then should be the ones to be mostly um, responsible and engaged in the kind of social transformation that one needed because we are the ones who have more at stake for uh, that kind of transformation, that kind of transformational politics. And um, it, as, as a result of that then, she analyzes the condition of black women and, and writes really two critical essays that are significant uh, to, to be analyzed still. And one of them is more popular and answer the neglect of the province of the Negro woman. But the other one that I tend to recommend to people, which is not read as much as we seek for equality, um, which I, still use, in fact, in my recent book, um, Black Women's Rights, I decided to use theoretically the Claudia Jones paradigm um, because she had actually articulated very early that women, because we uh, least represent half of the world, they should have half of the world's resources as well at, at our disposal. So her position then, in terms of the Black woman that she studied using her family experience her own experience and that of the people around her was that black women are the most, not just exploited, but super exploited 
of the of the various um, other working class um, communities simply because they're not just um, receiving the sort of lower end of the scale as far as salaries are concerned, but their labor is not just exploited by the dominant culture, but when they come home as well or in their own communities, their labor is also exploited by other what, what Marx would call class fractions. So they're exploited by white women, they're exploited by black men, and so on. So therefore, black women um, needed to be central to any kind of theoretical framing and therefore any kind of organizing. Um, so Sharice Widenstelli has a really nice piece on racial capitalism where she analyzes this really well and, and looks at black women as domestic workers being really, um, and the need to organize them at that point, being really fundamental to Claudia Joseph's thinking about this question of super exploitation. So her thesis um, or theoretical position then on the super exploitation of the black woman is one that really pushes then against, as you were saying earlier, the, the Marxist paradigm, which, I mean, the logic is, of course, workers of the world unite, right? But which workers? The framing of those workers tended to not really um, extend uh, 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 in, in the direction that um, Marx um, left them. And, and people like Jones would have took that discussion even further to look at black women then as the logical or the extension of the workers, right? Absolutely. And, and because she had this theoretical innovation um, within the party, even itself pushing the party further to the left, uh, you detail in the book just how severe the state repression by uh, the American state was against her. Uh, and starting in 1942, very early on, at, at just 27 years old, she's uh, starting to be surveyed by the FBI and aggressive surveillance. She gets arrested for the first time in 1948. And she's arrested, I think, a total of three times and constantly threatened with deportation uh, by the American state. So can you d detail a little bit uh, the documents that you were able to discover and research for this text that detail and show how uh, the American state repressed Claudia Jones? Right. And one of the things I discovered was that probably all of the, you know, she was part of a group of Black a black cadre, as, as it were, within the Communist Party, but not just black um, people from many other locations who were left as well. They were all persecuted by the state. That the idea was to destroy them and to destroy any kind of political movement that they um, were part of. Um, and remember, we are right in the middle of what is called the Red Scare. Um, and it, many people, you know, think we are still living the sort of after effects of that because of the ways in which communism or the names that are associated with communism tend to be um, sort of hurled at people sometimes as insults, even when they are not. I mean, any kind of activism that has to do with social transformation is automatically branded communism and therefore left to the side. And we laugh at the fact that Many people, including people like Martin Luther King Jr. or even Barack Obama would be identified as communists just simply because they're trying to talk about social transformation for working poor and black people and women and so on. So um, for Claudia and her cohort, um, and I mentioned cohort because there's another person named Ben Davis who was a lawyer who was really treated badly. He was a congressman, he was a councilman 
from Harlem, and he actually was arrested as well. So the idea was for them, just even having the ideas of, of communism was, was the crime. So they didn't do anything that would lead to overthrowing the government, but the idea was just having the ideas and speaking about it or thinking about it or writing about it would be constituted then as criminal activity under the Walter McCarran Act um, and then the Smith Act. Now she ends up, because she's from Trinidad and Tobago, which is back to my initial point, um, being doubly victimized by it and therefore the, the question of deportation. And you mentioned that her surveillance starts early, yes. So that from the time she comes to the United States, remember she comes at nine years old, and then she attempts to get citizenship um, as one normally does after the normal five-year period and after living a number of years. And she's denied that because she's a member of the Communist Party. And for this reason, in my work, I identified the fact that the whole question of U.S. citizenship and its identity is linked to being anti-communist or linked to really making sure that one doesn't have any kind of ideas linked to that. So in other words, the normal U.S. citizen should be should be not have any position that leads to communism, um, or as an idea, as an as an ideology, and so on. And, and it's interesting how um, places like Russia get framed then as equivalent with communism, even today with with the war, when everybody knows that um, that Russia and CLR change is really the best early analytical. Um, mine on this, where he says that Russia really never be, really became fully a socialist or communist country. It was really imperialist, and it was state capitalist, that's what you would call it. Um, and many people still say that the closest to having a communist operation or country in terms of an operating communist country would be Cuba, which is the closest to it. So Russia is definitely not that place. However, the framing by the U.S. government with that logic that just having the ideas of of, of communism meant that one was really working towards overthrowing the U.S. government. That's what it would, would say. And later on, actually, after Claudia Jones was deported in 1955, there would be a case called Yates versus the United States, which would really go back and say that that was wrong and, and, and sort of clarify that, that those people were not guilty. But by then, it was too late. Many people had been deported or gone away and so on, or incarcerated spent horrible years in jail and all of that. Now, Claudia would be tried um, with a group of communists, a second group of communists. There were 17 initially, and of course, the numbers would change over the time. But essentially, they were tried uh, for communism. They defended themselves the best they could. But then she was sentenced to a year and a day in Allison, West Virginia, along with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was a, um, at that point the president of the Women's Communist Women's um, the League of the Women's League of the Communist Party at the time. Um, when I looked at the surveillance of Claudia, and I requested the files from the FBI, I, I received two volumes, a stack of over a thousand pages of material. And interestingly, I was I said in one of the chapters, probably the last chapter of my book that it was FBI was almost like a mad bibliographer because they had in there everything, everything, like speeches, lectures, interviews. She gave, um, you know, and of course, all kinds of, of details, the documentation from the FBI of what they were looking for. And I, I noticed 
and I've used this in several of my presentations, that each time um, they would ask for more because usually the first reports would be like, well, this person just writes and talks about black people and women. And then you would get reports saying, well, you need to find more material. And so, so she was always, you know, um, being, so they were always pursuing her in different ways to see what she was thinking at that time. Uh, interestingly, her name, Claudia Jones, Jones was taken as a way of sort of um, delaying their understanding of who she was because her, her family name is Cumberbatch, so she's Claudia Cumberbatch. Um, and Claudia Cumberbatch Jones then is probably the ways that if one would identify her fully. So Jones is really not even her name, but that's her, her party name, if you will. Um, so the FBI surveillance is detailed. You have names of people who were in meetings with her, the normal, um, you know, people who reported back to them and so on. And it's actually available. So it's something that if people want to do research again, you can go back. I'm sure there's more material added now um, because they, it's, it's sort of cumulative and they keep adding stuff that they find. Uh, I was listening to a program in London, London on the BBC about her this earlier this week. And I was surprised when the reporter said that when they went to the Communist Party archives, they only found one document. And they were using amazing, because people, when I was doing research, people would always tell me, well, you need to probably check the Communist Party archives. And I never got around to doing that um, because I had enough material already. And plus I found a cache of her own material. Um, and, um, oh, and what I found, uh, from uh, that cache that I indicated was actually much more useful than what the FBI had done because this is where you got a lot of, you know, peripheral material about her work uh, as a journalist and so on. But it's, it's initially, I think the FBI documentation provided people like me with a lot of the leads about when she was arrested, the date, you know, what they were looking for and how they pursued her and what happened and so on, who reported and what kinds of um, activities she would have been involved in. For example, she um, got married to a guy named Abraham Skolnick um, and people still can't figure out what that was about. And some people suggest it was probably one of those for the Communist Party marriages uh, with the hope maybe that it would help her get her residency and of course it didn't work because then she's divorced soon after and, and so on. So those kinds of things are in the files, her divorce papers, you know, and and that sort of thing. Her marriage, the fact that she married him, where she lived, who her roommates were. Uh, she was involved in theater very early too and she was roommates at one point with Gloria Hansbury. Um, so yeah, so she was quite, you know, this is what I meant about Doing her, you find out that she is so amazing. Ruby D read her at her at her funeral, read at the obituary, um, and um, um, Chinese government uh, was at her funeral. And my former student, Tufeng Liu, who is now a professor, uh, postdoc at Penn, uh, has done a lot of work on her time in China as well. And and looked at documents in the Chinese in the Chinese archives that describe her work as well. And I, I was quite pleased when I was teaching in Beijing. In fact, that was one of the reasons I was happy to do a visiting professorship in China. I wanted to see what was available there. And of course, 
I was teaching in Beijing Foreign Studies University, and this is where I met Li Feng Liu. And he took me to the National Library and to some of the archives. And my books were there. I was quite happy, <laughs> surprised, but happy to know that they were there. Um, and I, I know why, of course. Uh, and then uh, he found a few things, but they were all in, in Chinese language. So I could not read them, but he has done that kind of work. So the other place people suggest that is still open that people should look at is probably the Russian archives. Gerald Horn, um, the historian, suggested that. And he's the kind of flies with every, everywhere around the world that he needs to do that kind of research, but I haven't been able to do that. But that would be something that somebody should do, you know, the next turn, whoever is doing research on her again. And I'd love to discuss that sort of international phase uh, of her life, because uh, as we were discussing, after she's imprisoned, um, she is released. Um, and then inevitably, she's deported from the United States uh, to Trinidad. Uh, it was interesting for me to learn that the colonial governor refused her entry back into Trinidad, saying that she may prove troublesome. Yeah. Uh, fascinating to learn about. And then, so instead, she goes to the United Kingdom uh, and joins the Communist Party of Great Britain. It's also interesting to see that the trouble that she had within the Communist Party of Great Britain with their, uh, a lot of the white members being more hostile uh, to her membership. Um, but I want to discuss a little bit of that period of her time in the United Kingdom, as well as these travels that she's having to China. She meets with Mao Zedong, which is very interesting, um, going to Russia, going to Japan, uh, also being very active in the anti-apartheid movement. So this is really, I, I think, she's really acting on her earlier desire uh, to create an anti-imperialist position and really look at a global perspective. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, in fact, I was fortunate to, to talk with um, people who knew her directly, um, who met her soon after she arrived, I should say. And one of the women I talked to said that she, when she saw her, she said, well, you must be in great demand because she had followed the story. And um, she said, no, they're, they're acting like if I'm not even here. So she, um, her, she was, she moved then from really high level activism in the United States, being really central to a lot of the black um, articulations of, of a position for a left position for black people, being a member of a cadre of black activists and so on, to in London really with none of that taking place. And she was really shocked by that because she assumed that she would really have had a different kind of reception, very similar to her experience in the United States. Uh, and it turned out really to the benefit of Black communities or Caribbean communities, which are just migrating at that time, because the, the famous wind rush took place in 1948, and she gets there in 1955. So with seven years after, she is really amazingly positioned to help develop the Caribbean community there, and she has all the skills. So the, the, the colonial government's mistake, I think, would have been, if she'd gone to Trinidad, it may have been easier for them in the end, <laughs> which ended up doing because she would have been having that less access. But they were worried because Trinidad had had a lot of labor, oil field workers, um, you know, protests and so on, and quite a lot of activity on it. I was told the last thing they wanted was a well-organized communist to show up and be in Trinidad able to help people do that kind of work. But it worked still to her benefit. So in London, she ends up she arrives in 55, and keep in mind that she is ill a couple of times 
she has the mild heart attack before she leaves and she's hospitalized and then she still goes on the, on the, the ship to leave to get to London uh, and arrives in London in the middle of, of, of winter, of course. And um, I, I could imagine it was not easy. She left her family and so on. But she, uh, from people I interviewed there, like people like Trevor Carter and so on, who was kind of a distant relative, indicated that they met her when she arrived and tried to make as comfortable as she could, as they could. And, and then soon after that, then she begins, you know, as she is want to, to, to start a, a a kind of um, um, pattern of activism which would lead to founding the West Indian Gazette and Afro-Asian Caribbean News um, in 1958. So if it's founded in 1958, you can imagine that 1957, 1956, she would still be doing the kind of work that would lead up to that. Um, so founding the newspaper really was central because she had a lot of experience in the United States working with the Daily Worker who threw in a number of communist um, organs and as a result she has those kinds of journalistic skills and I was really impressed with the fact that and I mentioned this in the chapter on her journalism that on her passport it crosses off typist and indicates journalist as her career um, of choice. So founding the West Indian Gazette gives her then a more a wider access to Caribbean community but she also becomes a major leader of sort of left uh, third world kind of activism to the newspaper. She would interview a range of people. She would meet all the Caribbean leaders who are looking at independence. She would meet the Pan-Africanist types as well. She would have friendships with Amy Ashwood Garvey, the first wife of Marcus Garvey. And she would really maintain then and develop a really amazing um, kind of community of activism then which would lead as well to developing the carnival, um, the first London carnival, and then, of course, her, her travels to um, Japan, and then to Russia, and also to China. So she has an amazing experience leading up to her untimely passing in 1964. And I'm curious to know more about her experience uh, also hosting the Afro-Asian Caribbean conference as well. So she was very, as you, as you mentioned, very in tune with uh, third world activism that was starting to begin at this time. Of course, then uh, the Bandung conference would come shortly after that. But what was her experience doing this kind of organizing, uh, such as her experience meeting um, very high dignitaries like, like Mao Zedong and others who were beginning to enunciate a sort of non-aligned or third worldist vision within the Cold War. Right, and that's probably, most people feel that losing her at that point is probably the saddest part because she was right then at the cusp of really being able to take forward a lot of those transformational positions that she had from the start. So she has a really nice essay which I published in this um, Jun Contagion book. Um, um, and it's called American Imperialism and the British West Indies, where she actually studies the, the, the nature of what would become sort of a flawed independence for the Caribbean. Um, and I've written about this um, in, in a couple other places where the US um, um, 
is beginning then at that point as the British um, is closing off their formal uh, colonial relationship um, to have a kind of relationship then with the British, which would then put the Caribbean under, still under a kind of control, but this time an economic control that was more imperialistic in orientation than the British version, if that's possible. <laughs> because the British version was more like extractive, you know, colonialism where they went in and occupied space and took as many resources they could and so on. But with the American one, it's sort of creating a sort of international nexus of economic exploitation, which which is really subtle, but it has no kind of ending because it's really locking in a lot of business interests. And she talks about that in, in that essay. It's really worth looking at if you haven't read it yet. American imperialism and the British West Indies. So she's saying basically that independence, even as people are thinking of it in a sort of positive way, is being already mortgaged, she would use that language, to sort of American interest and American imperialist interest. Um, and, and a couple other people would, would make a similar point, but she is really, her position is really clear. So that essay is really one that people should really look at because it, you can see it unfolding now in this contemporary time frame that even though she was writing about that way back then. Um, she also has another nice piece which was published in Freedom Ways called The Car Caribbean Community in Britain, where she analyzes the nature of Caribbean community in England, and what their needs were, what they, you know, at that point people were looking for work, trying to get accommodation, were running into racism, you know, trying to really create lives for themselves um, in what was supposedly the mother country, uh, which the colonials always, as you know, in, in marketing their um, their home country would always try to <clears throat> talk about the mother country as a sort of desirable location for you to go to. And then when you go there, you realize you're not that welcome. So she um, is really good at really analyzing that. Absolutely. And I think as you as you said before, it is so tragic to know that she died in 1964, right at the cusp of yeah. being so needed. But you do discuss uh, this line that I thought was really, really great in the text, uh, where you say Claudia Jones's position on the super exploitation of the black woman, Marxist Leninist in this formation, offered for its time the clearest analysis of the location of black women. You talk a little bit in the text about how this position has been discussed and you conclude that it's been that it has advanced Marxist Leninist positions beyond their apparent limitations. And you talk about how others, of course, you mentioned Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, and yourself as well, and all of your theoretical writings, Cherise Bird and Steli as well have enunciated this view. And I'd like to end it with with a little bit on that of what you think the legacy of Claudia Jones is today, uh, how her theory has changed, how we interpret uh, even Marxism itself and how it's helped uh, stretch it to make its analysis more relevant to the condition of Black women. You know, I'm, I've been, it's one of the things that has been the most fulfilling for me because keep in mind, it's, my book was published in something like 2007. <laughs> so in fact, it, it has um, more and more um, interest and more and more reach the older it is, which is so fascinating for me. So that it, in other words, normally, the normal trajectory of a book is that right after it comes out, you have that high and then, you know, it falls off. In this case, it's been like this. 
it, it starts low and then it kept going higher and higher. And it seems to me the more and more people read about it, the more they um they have access to it, the more there's interest, the more people teach it, the more it's discussed and so on. So I'm really happy for her uh, for that reason, for Claudia that for that reason, because then her ideas begin to live um again in, in a more dynamic way. So for her that to me is like just a win situation. Um, and yeah, in fact, what I've read from a number of young scholars um, or people who are just engaging the work now is that for many of them, this is like their first encounter with any kind of left thinking and um, so getting it from the point of view of a black woman and let them go back now and look at other things. I see her more as Leninist than Marxist. And, um, of course, most Marxist Leninists link those two because Marx, of course, provides that first analytical um, way of, of looking at the question of work and class and labor and all of those related questions that you get from the Communist Manifesto and Capital and so on. But for Claudia, um, you have a sense that she completes it, if you will. She completes that analysis. It was it had started, but it did not really go far enough. So Claudia Jones then becomes that person who takes those positions and then makes them real and more applicable to the contemporary time frame so that if we were to look at what happens uh, to women in locations like Brazil or in Cuba and so on, those women, and this is why my point about the book um, getting more and more um, um, exposure as, as the time passes on, that people from those locations who want to look at what the conditions of Black women are and what kinds of responses they can look at that would really have helped uh, them in, in the past and can help them into the future to analyze their conditions, then she becomes that person. And I'm really pleased uh, for her that her ideas and her thought sort of moves into the contemporary period in the way that it has. And I'm pleased to be the person who helped make that happen. Absolutely. And I have to say that this book has really helped me even expand my horizons and, and reconsider things and, and have that uh, that left perspective that completes the original uh, thesis, definitely, as you said. So thank you so much. And I, I highly recommend anyone watching to definitely read uh, Left of Karl Marx, Claudia Jones, uh, Her Life um, by Carol Boyce Davies. Are there any other texts of yours or anything else that people should look at? Let me look at my new work, Black Women's Rights, I called it. Um, and it's more like a it's a combination of all my work, if you will, culmination and a combination, because I, I use literature, I use sort of human rights, a culture, human rights discourse. I, I also use political theory to look at where Black women are positioned and what the question of Black women rights would mean if we were to really take them seriously, but looking at it in relation to leadership and particularities of power. Mm. But um, central to all of my work. And she has helped me too, because keep in mind, I started off as somebody who was doing literature, as I pointed out earlier. So to really do the kind of work that that, that I did with her, I actually have to get a, a, a degree in international human rights law. I did an LLM and I was able to then do the chapter on her um, deportation from that point of view using, you know, the kind of, of um, archival knowledge you get from doing any kind of work that has to do with legal studies. And then um, took it further by looking at a number of other ways in which her ideas, um, you know, become 
more and more useful as one applies them to different kinds of conditions, right? Whether it's carnival or whether it's, you know, journalism or whether it's, you know, just uh, the nature of living in, in the contemporary period, uh, women's rights, right, for example. So for me, the left of Karl Marx still is central for me because it's actually also one of the places that that um, that I think not just um, makes those arguments that she does more visible. It also helps educate us too in terms of the different ways of approaching a particular question, a particular problem. So it's my pleasure, and I thank you for the opportunity to talk about her work. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Professor. Uh, I will continue to be in touch over email and uh, really appreciate it. I would love to continue having more conversations in the future. For sure. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you.